Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Hello and welcome to this Library of Mistakes podcast. My name is Russell Napier and I'm the keeper of the Library of Mistakes. What is it? What is this Library of Mistakes? Well, it's a room full of books. Yes, one of those things. We have one in Edinburgh, in Lausanne in Switzerland and Pune in India. The Library of Mistakes is owned by Dadasco, a financial education charity based in Scotland. As well as running the Library of Mistakes, it also runs a course, an online course that you can take called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets. And it's in-person variety, which we run in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the course, see the link to Dadasco in the podcast show notes. I am delighted today to welcome Andrew Smithers, author of a new book, Economics of the Stock Market, uh, but known, I think, to just about everybody probably joining us as someone who has been at the forefront of, of thought on economics and the stock market uh, for a generation, really, and certainly for the last several decades. Andrew told me earlier that he's first dabbled in the stock market as a schoolboy in the 1950s, so he's got more experience uh, a longer experience than just about anybody else we will probably interview on this uh, podcast. Andrew, your new book uh, focuses heavily on the relationship between corporate net worth uh, and market valuation and the discrepancies between the theory and the practice. And the practice, of course, is something that you have been experiencing in real life now for several decades as an investor and an advisor to investors. But I thought I'd begin by explaining the theory behind this, and then you can critique the theory. And who better to go to for the theory than John Maynard Keynes uh, and his general theory of employment, interest and money. Uh, So let me read from that uh, to explain how this relationship is supposed to work. Uh, And you might explain how the economics of the stock market uh, differs from this and the implications, which the book suggests are very, very important indeed, not for just for investors, but for the whole of society. So this is Keynes writing, I think it was 1936, 1937. And he said the following, the daily revelations of the stock exchange, though primarily made to facilitate transfers of old investments between one individual and another, inevitably exert a decisive influence on the rate of current investment. For there is no sense in building up a new enterprise at a cost greater than that at which a similar existing enterprise can be purchased, whilst there is an inducement to spend on a new project, which may seem an extravagant sum if it can be floated off on the stock exchange at an immediate profit. Some people call that the capital cycle. It clearly relates to this concept of Q, which we're, and you're about to discuss. Uh, that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, maybe you could explain after all your years of experience and also based on what's in this book, where you think it's, it's breaking down or not working uh, and what we might learn from the observation that this relationship is not as strong perhaps as Keynes imagined, and as standard economics imagines? Well, you're absolutely correct. The consensus model, and indeed that implicit in Keynes's words, is that people will respond to the net worth of companies as shown by their second-hand value of equipment, i.e. what it would cost to produce uh, allowing for depreciation. If you can create stock market value, which is greater than that, the theory is that people will then invest. This theory is wrong. It assumes that what investors 
and and fund company managers are concerned with is that figure of net worth. Net worth here is a figure which is found by surveys by, for example, the ONS in the UK or the BEA in America. These institutions survey what secondhand values of equipment are currently selling for, and that is used to build up the net worth of the corporate sector and by implication of individual companies. It's not the same as book value. Book value makes no allowance for inflation, which is very important. But those figures are assumed by consensus economics to be the ones that people take note of. I have never met anybody who has worked for a long time or even a relatively short time in financial markets who finds that anywhere near their own experience of the way in which people actually behave. Both company managers and shareholders are actually interested in the present value of their investments, not as shown by their net worth figure, but as shown by the stock market value. And this can diverge a great deal from net worth figures. Now, if the stock market was the correct judgment, then you have problems because if you drive up shares way above their level of their net worth, you drive up a ratio of net market value to net worth, which is known as Q. Q is a mean reverting series and it falls much faster than it rises. So if Q becomes at very high levels, then the economy, the financial markets through the economy become unstable. So this is something you should avoid. Now in consensus theory, it can't happen because if the stock market went up, everybody would invest more and the increase in Q uh, would be eliminated because although share prices would go up, having gone up, the amount of new investment would soon push up net worth so that there was a mean reversion of the Q ratio through a rise in the capital stock at net worth, not as actually happens through adjustments in share prices. Now, what I've shown in the book is that the adjustment is dangerous and financial behavior responds very much to monetary policy, particularly when monetary policy is exacerbated or aggravated by quantitative easing. When central banks indulge in excessively low interest rates or encourage more excessive rises in Q through involving in QE, then you get the net worth of companies barely changing, but the stock market value goes up a great deal. In these conditions, and they're the ones that we have now, the stock market becomes very vulnerable and is likely to crash. And if it crashes, we then find that we have a major recession on our hands as we did after the crash of 2008.
under the uh, the Q ratio, which you mentioned, and people should know that it is on your website. It's at an all time high, and we'll come back to discuss what that means for the future return for stock markets, because I'm sure people are interested in that. Uh, but your book also reveals uh, you've pointed out that central banking is one of the reasons, perhaps, for this. But it also reveals certain misincentives, which I think standard economics tends to ignore by lifting the corporate veil. So one of the critiques in your book is that we need to rethink again, or economics needs to rethink again uh, about those incentives. Would you like to say something about where, what you think the mistake has been uh, in terms of this corporate veil, its existence, its lifting or otherwise, and, and about the misincentives that exist, which are perhaps also part of why the capital cycle or Keynes's cycle, whatever we like to call it, Tobin's cycle, is not working as it was as it is supposed to work in theory. If you go back to classical economics, I pre-Keynesian, it was assumed, uh, as I say, that the stock market was never out of line with reality, uh, and that the balance of investment and savings, the intentions to save and to invest, could be brought together to avoid either too much unemployment or too much inflation by adjustments in interest rates. The Keynesian revolution was to show that that did not necessarily work. You could get, in his words, a liquidity trap. In these circumstances, interest rates alone would not cause the economy to be in balance and you needed fiscal policy to add to that, to bring the balance. What I'm showing is that even with a combination of fiscal and monetary policy, you can get a longer term imbalance between intentions to save and intentions to invest. Now, one of the reasons for that is the point that you have just made, which is that the change in the way people get paid in management, which took place largely in the 1990s, there was a major change in management remuneration practices, which has continued afterwards. After that introduction, there was a strong incentive against investment. Companies are run by managers, and managers have, in economic terms, their own utility functions, i.e. they respond to incentives depending on what those incentives are. And before the management remuneration revolution, the incentives were reasonably balanced. That is to say, you didn't want to lose your job as your primary consideration if you're in management. And to order not to lose your job, you don't want to have too little leverage because that makes it too easy to be taken over. And we don't want too much because if you get too much leverage, then when there's a downturn, you have to go to the stock market for new equity because you cannot anymore finance yourself by debt. And in those conditions, you have to go to shareholders and shareholders do not like new issues. The stock market price tends to fall sharply when companies go to the market for new issues, not necessarily 
because there are wonderful opportunities out there that the stock market can usually accept. But when they've become over-leveraged and need to raise money, not to increase their future, but just to stabilize their existing present. Now, that combination means that companies are anxious in the past to invest at the right level. Uh, they didn't want to invest uh, too little because in those cases, they would find that other companies became more efficient than they do. Their productivity rose because they invested more. But companies who were investing didn't have bad earnings per share because they were getting addition, a sufficient return on their new investment to keep their return on capital satisfactory. However, what happened with the managerial revolution in remuneration was there was an additional incentive for short-term benefits to earnings per share. And that shifted the balance of people's incentive away from investment. So one of the results of the managerial revolution in remuneration, bonus culture, as it's often, I think, correctly called, was to push down investment relative to saving in terms of intentions. Once that had happened, you had this tendency for the economy to be always too weak in terms of demand unless uh, you had a great stimulus from fiscal and monetary policy. And the result of that was overstimulus from monetary policy. And then you get the imbalance in the queue. So what's happened, you may say, in rough terms, by incentivizing people not to invest, you have a world in which to get a reasonable balance between demand and supply, you have to have excessively stimulative monetary policy. And when you have excessively stimulatory monetary policy, you have an imbalance in queue. And this goes to the fundamental of my book. What I'm saying is that there is more than one equilibrium which needs to be maintained if we are going to have a stable economy. And classical and post-classical Keynesian economics see only one equilibrium as being needed, which is this Keynesian balance between ex-ante saving and ex-ante investment. Unfortunately, as I point out, this is wrong. And we have another imbalance, which is the Q. I suspect there are actually more than just two imbalances. There's probably a big debt problem, but I can demonstrate the Q1, and I can't demonstrate in the same clarity uh, that debt is also another problem, though I suspect that it is. So you, you point out this change in this book and in your last book, Productivity and the Bonus Culture, you point out this change in remuneration policy in the mid-1990s, which, peculiarly enough, does coincide with the queue going to what some people are brave enough to call a permanently higher plateau, Andrew. Uh, so we've discussed why that is uh, an incentive which may redirect corporate cash flow away from the creation of corporate assets to actually buying back shares and adding gearing. And uh, that may be responsible for the lack of investment in the economy, which is important for all of us, uh, but also perhaps the higher Q ratio. But you also hinted in that answer 
you use the word the relationship between shareholders and what shareholders don't like. Now, that's not something that you dwell upon uh, on this book, but as a man who's advised shareholders for a long time, and of course, being a shareholder uh, personally, but also with Mercury Asset Management, uh, would you like to comment on maybe some of the incentives or misincentives in the professional investment community that may be uh, uh, adding to this and something that also that may mean that mainstream economics doesn't understand because it doesn't fully understand the incentives in the professional shareholding community. And that's another shift, maybe a 50 or 60 year shift to move shares into the hand of professional investors with perhaps different incentives from the incentives that we face as individual shareholders. Yes, I I don't look upon uh, the, the realignment of incentives in fund management as a major problem. The major problem lies in corporate management. I think you're quite right, however, that if you have fund management industry increasingly uh, being the intermediary between individual investors and uh, the management whom they vote for or don't vote for, you do get an extra little extra bias. This is because fund managers not only do well when the stock market goes up because the money they have under management goes up, they do well when they get in good inflows. And unfortunately, shareholders seem to respond very quickly to short-term measures of inflow. The result is that it is very wise to try and strive hard in the short run uh, for good uh, output, uh, good sorry, or good figures in terms of your um, performance statistics. Now, the stock market goes up 90% of the time, more than it does on average, and it falls 10% of the time. Uh, even at the previous peak of the stock market, which was in 2000, Stephen Wright and I, who then wrote a book called Value in Wall Street, pointed out that although the stock market was then at a high point, which now been largely exceeded, but still the other top level it had been except 1929, we said nonetheless, the, even with this information, the chances of the stock market going down next year are only about 70%. Now, that meant that you had a 30% chance of underperforming if you looked after the interests of your shareholders in the sense that you said, this is an overvalued market, I'm going to go a bit liquid. Now, a 30% chance of ruining your career in business is a bit high. So fund managers do have a bias in favor of being invested and being following what is going up most, the momentum, which often drives stock markets in the short run. So there is an extra bias, and I suspect that the increased volatility of the stock market in the 20th and 21st century, compared with that in the 19th, was that there had been a greater concentration of uh, investment via the intermediaries of fund management rather than direct by individuals. But I would emphasize, while that is a problem, I don't think it's anything like the problem 
that the, the malign, the perverse incentives that the bonus culture has given to management are actual companies. That is a far more serious problem. Now, the wonderful thing about your book is it has lessons for fund managers, but also for policymakers, and suggests that they should be interested in this divergence between corporate net worth and the valuation because of the jarring effect on the economy, the credit system that we can get when there are sudden changes in that value in that valuation. Your prescriptions or your recommendations to policymakers to to deal with this divergence. Or what uh, exactly, what do you think we should do? It's important not just for economics, but for the uh, uh, investors as well, because if we're going to redirect quite a lot of cash flow to building corporate assets rather than, let's just call it financial engineering as a, as a shortcut. Th those are important implications as well. So if uh, we had Andrew Smithers King for a day, what policies would you put in place to try and cope with the problem that you have, uh, that you've so clearly outlined in the book? Well, you put your finger on the spot. What we need to do is to encourage investment because it's been the discouragement of investment which is the problem. And now to encourage investment is actually quite simple. Uh, you need to shift taxation from being taxing on investment to taxing on consumption. You can, If you do that, you don't have to increase the budget deficit. You need the budget deficit, whatever it ever was before, but you need to shift taxation. Now, the tax on investment is called corporation tax. This is often misunderstood. It is sometimes thought, or lack of thought, assumption, that corporation tax is paid by shareholders. It's clearly not. Corporation tax really didn't exist in the 19th century, and it existed often at high levels in the 20th and subsequently. And the level of return, the return on equity in the 19th century, in the 20th and the 21st has all been the same. That's the trend level has not changed. So clearly, corporation tax is not paid by shareholders. Equally, it's not paid by the people who work on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not paid by labor. It's paid by investment. What happens if you put an increased corporation tax or levy corporation tax? You deter investment. So what you must do, obviously, that by some means on some form of consumption tax, there are lots of those VAT, uh, sin taxes, there are lots of ways that you can uh, tax consumption. It should be noted, however, that if you do cut corporation tax, it is even better to cut it in a way which changes the perverse incentives of the remuneration culture to beneficial incentives. And it's best to cut corporation tax in a way which puts up earnings per share for those who invest heavily rather than just anybody. If you cut corporation tax without anything else, then you put up earnings per share in the short run uh, you don't put up the return on capital, uh, but you do put up earnings for share in the short run. But if you give people a tax incentive through tax credits to invest, then you will have not only the benefit if you uh, lower corporation tax, but you will have the benefit of incentivizing the very people that have caused the problem 
uh, owner's culture attitudes. Well, we also live in an age of very high levels of debt, and not every corporate sector has those, but some of them do. And even if we look at debt service ratios, which is, you know, accounts for the very low level of interest rates, we have still high levels of debt. But it seems to me that your prescription would give us a way of investing without necessarily bringing on more debt, uh, because the cash flow that would be flow, uh, freed up would be servicing this. Uh, maybe you could comment on that, but also the role of equity in, in financing this. Are we looking at a world where there should be more equity issuance uh, and less debt issuance, or is this all going to be serviceable, this great investment boom, through the implications on cash flow from the lower rates of taxation? Well, the simple uh, answer is that it's not really through raising new money in the stock market that equity is expanded. Far and away, the biggest cause of true expansion is retained profits. Now, retained profits are the difference between profits after tax and cash distributed to shareholders either through dividends or through buybacks and takeovers and financed by debt. Well, quite clearly, if you shift the incentives, towards more investment, uh, the first thing likely to happen is a reduction in buyback. The money that will finance new investment will come largely uh, from a reduction in buyback. You will then have a stable ratio of debt to equity at any particular level of interest rates, but you will have more equity and more investment. Andrew, you and I have worked together for since 2004 on the Practical History of Financial Markets course. Uh, that's a course that now runs in an online version called the Advanced Valuation in, in Financial Markets. Uh, and when we began this, it was the Q ratio was just coming off what had then been an astronomical high. It seemed that it was in for a, a mean reversion. And here we are, I mean, admittedly, many, many years later, and actually it has now just gone above its 2000 level. Uh, Forecasting, particularly about the future, is particularly difficult. Uh, but I wondered if you could say something about the uh, the pace, perhaps, of this likely mean reversion in, in Q. I think we both believe it has to happen. We both discussed some of the mechanisms through which it can happen. Uh, but I know in, in our discussions, you've told me that you're more personally more concerned about the long-term return from equities than you have been perhaps in your entire career. So what is the, the path for Q? Is it a long, slow decline? Is it a short, sharp decline? What should investors be uh, be concerned about, worried about in terms of the, the path of Q, which is the most difficult? Let it mean reverts, I, th I think we agree, but the, the pace at which it mean reverts is something you also have some uh, opinions on. Well, the historical pattern uh, shows that Q will tend to revert quickly rather than slowly. I think I already mentioned that the stock market data shows that the market gives you an above average return 90% of the time, and it's above average positive return, and it's positive long term, it's a good return, and only 10% of the time to get negative return. But obviously, you have to get a lot of negative return to offset 90% uh, above average. So the stock market tends to fall sharply. That is the Probable. It's not certain. We only have 220 years of data, and in that time, we probably had not more than eight, 
cycles to use. So we don't have a vast amount of data, but it's pretty good. 220 years is quite a reasonable amount of data to form that opinion. The next thing we can say is that if the stock market is going to fall sharply, what are going to be the proximate cause? The underlying cause is it's wildly overvalued. But the proximate, the short-term thing which will tip the balance is, I think, most likely to be stagflation. I think that uh, the rapid rise that we've got in inflation will be extremely difficult to control, not necessarily impossible, extremely difficult to bring that down without increasing unemployment and recession. So therefore, it seems to me that we're likely to get into a scene which was very similar to that we had after the second of the two oil shocks, really, in which interest rates have to go up in order to prevent uh, inflation, to bring down inflationary expectations. In the process of doing that, the stock market is badly hit. The aftermath of the bad hit in the stock market is a financial crisis and a recession, and that will then solve itself afterwards, because once the inflation rate starts to come down again, then people can get back to stimulating the economy. But it's going to be very difficult. You'll have to get a delayed impact from stopping inflation, and you will have then the delayed impact that it takes a quite a long time to bring inflation and unemployment down to un unemployment back up again. You'll get, first of all, higher inflation and higher unemployment. And after a while, we'll find a way out of that, but it takes time. So I have to stress, I'm not asking you for investment advice, but under these circumstances, which is the key asset class that should be held by investors, not individual securities, but which asset class will preserve wealth, the purchasing power of wealth in this particular scenario that you outlined? Well, nothing is going to preserve the purchasing power of wealth in that uh, environment. There are three asset classes, basically. There is short-term money, there is uh, long-term bonds, and there is uh, equities. Well, in the scenario I'm talking about, the impact on bonds is going to be bad, both because their value will be undermined by inflation and by rising interest rates. The impact on equities will be bad because although their net worth will be rising through inflation, the impact of the stock market collapse overwhelms that. So the best protection in terms of asset class in a stagflation is cash. And that was very much the message last time round. Although the value of cash was falling in England in 74 uh, very sharply, I was then chairman of a company which was cash rich and we managed to over, take over a business basically many times our size, which was very nice for our shareholders. Uh, and we were able to do that because the short-term value of cash was so huge when asset prices collapsed. 
Now, the economics of the stock market has much in it for investors, but I think it's primarily aimed at trying to change some of the thinking in economics, because as you point out, there's the way the world does work and the way the world should work, and they're, they're two different things. As, as we conclude our discussion, what in this book would you really like economists to focus on and to reevaluate and rethink about from all your years and experience as to where this divergence between how the world works and how economists think it should work. Is there anything, I mean, we've covered some of it, but is there anything else you'd like to raise and say, this needs to be a focus for further research and further understanding? And as you've pointed out, it may have been bubbling around in the background for a long time, but it needs to come to the forefront. And then we can perhaps focus everybody on where economics needs to be uh, pressing to, to come up with some new uh, considerations. The fundamental difference between the model of the economy, which you, I think, have labeled uh, the stock market model, which seems to be a very good label, and the consensus model is that the stock market model uses the data available to us from financial market returns. Now, consensus economists have been very, very reluctant to use this data. Reasons are very simple, because it blows a hole in their theories. But the, the data which we now have available, which we didn't have when the current theory was invented 60 years ago, the data we now have shows that that theory is wrong. And this is naturally enough a, a major problem. We all know it is extremely difficult to get a, a revolution in science because of the sociology of academics. Uh, and that is, I'm afraid, what we need. We need the very simple thing. Economists must use the information available from financial market returns, for both cash, debt, and equity, to build a new model. And I'm hoping that they will find that the model that I have built is sound enough uh, to be usable, though, of course, it will be, I'm sure, capable of endless improvement, as any understanding in science must be. Well, as you know, you're speaking on the Library of Mistakes podcast, so we will do whatever we can, Andrew, to further the uh, the goal, the crusades, if I could use that word, uh, to try and do something about this and uh, bring that data to the forefront of what economists uh, should be thinking about. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, needless to say, it, it raises lots of questions as well as provides some answers. But uh, finding the right questions is perhaps, in our profession, even more important than finding the right answers. Because I suspect we're in an era where lots of people are going to get lots of right answers, but to the wrong, the wrong questions. And I think the book helps us ask the right questions. And when I say us, I mean uh, investors, but I think also policymakers. So I really hope that it is widely read by economists, policymakers, uh, and investors. And I want to thank you for writing it and the productivity of the bonus culture and valuing Wall Street and all the work you've done for uh, the advanced valuation in, in financial markets. And uh, we are trying on this podcast to change the world one mistake at a time. I think you're trying to do it quicker than we are. Uh, and I hope you have more success than we've had. But thank you from everybody in this industry as well for all of your contribution in, in trying to speed that process. And this book goes a long way further. So in, in behalf of the Library of Mistakes, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you very much. Russell, that's very kind words. 
Thanks for listening, and to explore the new Library of Mistakes in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our books and keep up to date on what we're up to, do follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice.